to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast. You know, it's that show where this crazy 30-something libertarian goes on rants and advances the ideas of liberty. Or at least I give it the old college try. Now, speaking of college, you know, back when I was in college, I didn't really give it the old college try. When it comes to all this liberty stuff, I was somewhat apolitical, really, when I first went to college, and I started to develop my political views a little bit in college, thanks to a good friend of mine, Howie Snowden, who you heard from last week on our latest Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor, the Origin Special. He sort of pointed me down that path. But if I was going to be honest, eh, which I may as well, it's just you and me here, right, guys? You know, I spent a lot more time partying and futzing around and not really paying attention to this kind of stuff back in college than I should have been, nor were there really any groups for people with a sort of libertarian bent back in, in my day, as they say. You know, nowadays, I'm so inspired by all the young people I see out there working hard to advance the ideas of liberty through various organizations, doing all the things I wish I could go back and tell my younger self to do, slap them in the face and say, get off your keister, sonny, go make some things happen in the world. But that just wasn't who I was then. It's a little bit more of who I am now, so maybe I'm trying to make up for it with this show. But there really are a lot of great organizations and a lot of great young individuals out there doing a lot of work for Liberty. And you know, one of them is here with me on the show today. He is the Michigan State Chair for Young Americans for Liberty and a campus coordinator for Students for Liberty. He was also a professional advancement fellow with Students for Liberty and is now the project director for Student for Liberty's Liberty in North Korea project, as well as president of the Liberty in North Korea rescue team at Central Michigan University. Despite all of that stuff he's involved with, he has still found the time to join me here on the show today. Ty Hicks, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, Ty, thanks for coming on the show today. And, you know, you're very active, a lot more politically active than I was back in college. So how did this all first start for you? How and when did you first become interested in the ideas of liberty? Well, I always tell people I'm a recovering socialist. In high school, I got interested in politics and public policy through uh, the left side of the political spectrum. And fortunately, a good acquaintance of mine gave me a copy of Atlas Shrugged, and the rest is sort of history. That's how I got interested in the ideas of liberty. And I translated that to a beginning involvement in activism when I came to college, and I founded my own university libertarians group on my campus and since then, we've branched that into three organizations on my campus. Wow. And, and, you know, it's funny you mentioned Atlas Shrugged because that is a work that has, that has been the answer to that question that I've asked just about every <laughs> guest I've had on. What first got you into this? And several people have brought up that same book, Atlas Shrugged, no matter where they came from. Now, for me, I was kind of, you said you're a recovering socialist. I was a recovering conservative. I grew up in a sort of small government, standard conservative household before I started branching off and seeing things a different way through various works. I, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged being one of them. So what is it about Atlas Shrugged that really kind of pulled you, I guess? I don't know if you want to say snapped you out of your former beliefs or what exactly did it do to you that made you view things in a different way? Well, I think that it's really reducible to one thing. And in a sense, it's sort of uh, parallel to the entire philosophy of liberty. And when I'm explaining the philosophy of liberty to people, 
it is beautifully complex and nuanced at times, but the idea is simple. And I think that the simple notion of respecting other people's right to do with their lives as much so as I would want my right to do with my life respected was fundamental in that. I, I didn't realize the contradiction in wanting to redistribute other people's stuff um, while still being able to maintain my own. Right. I mean, how can you argue for your own freedom while at the same time advocating to utilize other people's property in, in various ways that they may or may not agree with? Now, I know you're involved with several organizations, both Young Americans for Liberty as well as Students for Liberty. So can you kind of explain to people out there, since we haven't really discussed these great organizations on the show, you know, what are these two organizations, Young Americans for Liberty and Students for Liberty? You know, I think some people might confuse the two groups. So, you know, how are they distinct from each other? And maybe you can give me just kind of a quick overview of the goals of each group, respectively. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, uh, I'm glad you mentioned this because I'm one of the few individuals who's been able to take advantage of virtually every uh, leadership program that both organizations have. And the founders of each, Alexander McCobin for Students for Liberty and Jeff Frazee for Young Americans for Liberty, just said uh, over the summer when I was at the Young Americans for Liberty National Convention just how much it is that SFL and Yale truly love each other and are really interdependent in terms of their purpose and their niche in the liberty movement. They were both formed around the same time, about six years ago, and Alexander and Jeff, they will tell you gladly, they sat down and initially they were concerned that they would be at odds with one another. Some people still have that notion in their head that there's a competition between SFL and Yale, and I would say that that's only true insofar as it's competitive and friendly. But Yale is chapter-based, which is something SFL is not, and that's one of the single biggest distinctions. Yale has over 550 chapters nationwide, while SFL supports any sort of pro-liberty group, whether it be a Yale chapter, a Students for Concealed Carry groups, and so on. And SFL is also international, which Yale is not. A couple other distinctions quickly is that SFL focuses a lot on intellectual development in terms of the ideas of liberty. Not to say that Yale does not place an emphasis on that, but I like to sort of think that SFL is a little bit more theory while Yale is more action, trying to give students the nuts and bolts of effective activism, and not only that, but effective tools in uh, practices that they can use in the political process to apply the principles of liberty in the political process. You know, it's really interesting to hear the distinction while at the same time seeing how these groups work together, are very friendly with each other, obviously, because you're very active in both groups. And it's interesting because, you know, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe YAL, Yale, stems from the sort of Ron Paul movement in a way, while SFL stems from more kind of the Cato group. And, you know, when you see the the quote-unquote adults of this movement, you often see a lot of sort of infighting between a lot of the Ron Paul, Mises-type people, a lot of the Cato group. You see them at odds so much, so it's really great to see these groups that sprung from those two different places can work together in such a positive way without all the kind of snipping you see from, I don't know, I'd say the quote-unquote adults of the movement. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right on point with that. Yale was born out of the Youth for Ron Paul movement in 2008, and Students for Liberty originally began in Cato's office. And I think that those are sort of exemplars of exactly what both organizations were going to be all about right from the get-go. Yale being geared toward political action, organizing, and activism. SFL being a little bit more geared towards the academic side of the liberty movement. 
But regarding the infighting, every time I hear somebody, you know, in, in the student movement talking about any sort of dissent between SFL or Yale, I always dissuade them of that because it's absolutely not true. And I like to think of both organizations uh, as, you know, sort of sister organizations. There are plenty of people like myself who are active in both, and I would encourage anyone to get involved in both of them as much as possible. As would I, because, you know, as I stated in the intro of the show before I brought you on, I wasn't really politically active at all in college. I started to find some of my ideas around that time. I had a friend who actually worked in Congress as a page, and he had met this Ron Paul character, so he started to tell me about him. I also ran into Harry Brown's book, so I started to kind of theoretically think about this stuff. But to be honest, I spent most of my time either partying, sometimes blowing off my classes, and not really focusing on anything like like the kind of work you're doing. So it's really impressive to see not just yourself, but so many other great young people involved with these organizations and being really active. Now, you've used this to your advantage, the Students for Liberty particularly. You are a professional advancement fellow with Students for Liberty, and that actually led you into your work with the Liberty North Korea Project. So you could tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I found out about Liberty in North Korea last spring semester, so just a few short months ago, really. And when I heard about them, they they came with their nomads. That's how they spread their message uh, across the country is by going to different college campuses or communities with their special intern program, the nomads. And the nomads will carry the message of Link along with them. And when I heard it, uh, it, it truly choked me up and got me very inspired you know, we, we talk about the philosophy of liberty and advocate for it here in the U.S. as if we have it incredibly bad. And that's not to, you know, disparage any of the arguments for libertarianism regarding domestic policy at all. It's just that when you realize exactly the severity of what the North Korean people are going up against in regards to their government, it makes what we are advocating for, you know, look almost ridiculous. Um, and so I, I just knew I had to get involved. And now I, I firmly believe that the pursuit of a freer North Korea and the pursuit of a freer United States and globe um, are interdependent missions and that both of them can reinforce one another. And I'm seeing that in my activism with Link and SFL both. Now, what is Link's specific mission? Because, you know, when I first ran across Link, I didn't really know anything about it. I just saw it's called Liberty in North Korea. And, you know, we're so trained to think in that sort of anti-interventionist mentality. I think that's one, in many ways, a problem with the libertarian movement is this kind of focus on anti-interventionism. And, and I agree with the context that most libertarians put it in when it comes to military intervention and that sort of thing. But it almost puts up a red flag when you see talk about, you know, liberty in another country. Oh, so what is this? You know, some other neocon project where they're just calling for the U.S. military to go in and intervene. But when we're talking about liberty and we're talking about freedom, I mean, this is not something that only applies to Americans. At least it shouldn't. And North Korea, by all accounts, is absolutely one of the least free places on Earth. So it's definitely a noteworthy subject to talk about, especially because people in North Korea are not in the same situation we have. We get to hop on Skype and, you know, I get to put out a podcast expressing our views and talking about all the things we want to talk about. People in North Korea don't have anything close to that kind of freedom. They can't even really talk amongst themselves. So, you know, what are the main things you've learned about the situation in North Korea through your work with Link? I'll answer the second one first, which is what exactly are we going up against? So the North Korean issue, I truly believe, is perhaps the largest one facing humanity uh, today. And that's certainly the position of Link as a national organization. 
Some of the freedoms that the North Korean people have lost include a lack of freedom of movement, no freedom of speech, no freedom of information, uh, forced leadership, adulation, no religious freedom whatsoever. And when we hear these terms, you know, we have this sort of westernized conceptualization of what this means. Oh, no freedom of speech, so they can't say certain things. Well, no. Uh, the way in which the North Korean people are being oppressed is truly unfathomable to some people in the West. No freedom of movement, for instance. Not only is it illegal most times for you to travel inside of the country, but some people have been forcibly relocated to distant parts of North Korea up in the mountains because they were perceived to be the most politically disloyal to the regime. You know, when we talk about freedom of speech, you know, in America, we are advocating for more liberal, more classically liberal freedom of speech codes um, on campuses and elsewhere. But in North Korea, children are taught that the Kim leaders can read their minds. So they truly have no way to even conceptualize a thought that might speak out against the regime, let alone voice it. If you are to voice it, that is the surest way to end up in a concentration camp. In North Korea, there are five of them. Um, and, you know, I'll just name one last thing because uh, I think that it's incredibly uh, important, which is the, the leadership there. They, they have fostered a complete personality cult around the Kim family. It's truly Orwellian. Um, you know, what I just mentioned about their notion that the leaders can read their minds is testament to that. But truly every single accomplishment of North Korea, whether it's, you know, an economic achievement, you know, there are very few of them. It's attributed to the Kim family. Whenever there's a problem at the factory, at the school, or something like this, this is in the history books for North Koreans. They are taught that nothing would be going on in Korea successfully without the Kim family. So there's that. And of course, this leaves no room whatsoever for practicing a religion other than worshiping the Kim family. And then if you, you tack all this on top of the fact that they are facing chronic food shortages, they have horrible public health, and they literally have a caste system in North Korea based off of perceived political loyalty to the regime. The situation for most North Korean people is truly, truly horrible. Access to electricity and basic resources is also not commonplace whatsoever unless you are a leading government official or a member of the military, which means that if you are a North Korean citizen, at best you can try to hope to be a part of the military because under Kim Jong-il's military first policy, this also meant that the military ate first. There's plenty more density to the subject as well, too. Perhaps some of that will come out with uh, some additional questions. But Link... Uh, Liberty in North Korea, the organization, is of course trying to address this, and they're trying to do something very interesting. So you said, and I think that you're very right to point this out, this is certainly what happened to me when I first heard the name Liberty in North Korea. When you hear that, you're sort of thinking, well, are we trying to liberate North Korea? Are we going to you know, send in the tanks and remove the Kim family? Sure, yeah. We're so kind of trained. When I say trained, I just mean reading all the stuff that libertarians typically put out there. And all the stuff that neocons often put out there kind of as a guise to go in under the guise of humanitarian aid and that sort of thing to call for military action. So that's that's kind of, if you didn't look into it any further, that might be just an initial, oh, wait, is this another one of those things? But there is actually a lot more to link, as you'll, as you'll continue to describe. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Link is not advocating for intervention whatsoever. So that's, you know, that's a misconception that some people may have and should be dissuaded of. Link is not calling on government action really at all. And that's sort of a unique, distinct characteristic of them that actually drew me towards them as well, is Liberty in North Korea is trying to stand by the North Korean people. One of their primary objectives is to shift the perception on the North Korean issue. Link asserts that in the West, especially, we have this view of North Korea where we pay attention to the government, as in the Kim family. We think of them as being silly or delusional or crazy or unhinged. And we pay attention to the high politics. We also pay attention to their nuclear proliferation or their nuclear policies, etc. But what really gets lost in this narrative, Link says, is the tragedy that are befalling the North Korean people every day. And so the North Korean people are getting left out of the narrative. And Link says that not only should we not pay attention to the high politics because it's useless, but we should be paying attention to the people because that's exactly where change is happening. So what I mean by that is, North Korea, out of any other country in the entire world, has proven itself to be the most resilient to international pressure, hands down. In fact, it revels in, you know, throwing the middle finger up against any of the wishes of the United States, South Korea, you know, China, or any of these other people. And they're more than happy to do exactly the opposite of what we would like them to do. They have said openly in front of the UN, yes, we have these camps where we have people who are prisoners, yet we don't use the term concentration camp, and therefore we don't have those. So, I mean, they're not dumb. They are very smart. They're very intelligent. But change is not expected at, at the level of the high politics. It's just not going to happen. And also, if the Kim family were to be ousted or assassinated or, you know, insert your favorite interventionist policy there... There's, not, there's nothing to really say that that's going to be an immediate positive for the North Korean people. There could be a, a disastrous power vacuum there. So really what Link is about is trying to demonstrate where change is happening in North Korea, and that is at the level of the people, they say. And let me just mention two ways in which change is happening at the level of the people. One is through the markets that are emerging. There's a new generation of millennials, people my age in North Korea, and they go by the name Zhangmadang generation. And Zhangmadang is the Korean word for market. In the new generation of millennials, black markets are arising at a very quick rate, and they're becoming more prevalent throughout the country. This has been great for a number of reasons. Not only do the North Koreans have a wider access to food, of course, which is an immediate tangible benefit, but these markets have given rise to technologies that North Korea as a government has prohibited. DVDs, CDs, USBs, modern technologies coming with information from the outside world at times has been extraordinarily valuable to North Koreans. So when a North Korean gets their hands on a DVD or CD with a South Korean pop culture sitcom on it or something like this, they see the people with food, with good clothes that look just like them, that are their you know hereditary kin. Um, it's very difficult for the regime to maintain loyalty at that point. So these markets are transforming ideas in a way that we could not have really imagined. And I think that that gives us a lot of optimism on the North Korean issue. The second way um, in which change is happening, which is cl very closely related to the last one, is the influx of information that is happening from refugees. So Liberty in North Korea, is, as I'm sure we'll explain here in a moment, 
saves North Korean refugees primarily. That's their primary function. And once these refugees gain safe resettlement in the United States, South Korea, or some other modern country, these people are able to reacclimate themselves to modern society, enjoy their freedom, take advantage of their potential, and then arguably more importantly, they're able to send money and information back to those that they may have left behind in North Korea. So there's a snowball effect of skepticism of the regime that's occurring, and Link believes that to truly be a mechanism of change inside of the country, one which we will never be able to compare to any sort of foreseeable top-down change. And I, I truly believe that to be the case. I think that if we want to see long-lasting, irreversible change in North Korea, we need to change ideas. We need to change the ideas of that society. And right now, the state is losing its monopoly as the source of those ideas. Well, you're right on about ideas because, you know, no government, no society is going to change unless the ideas of the people change. And you know, it's so hard for us to wrap our minds around kind of the situation of a person in North Korea. Like you mentioned earlier, you know, we talk about restrictions on freedom of speech and that kind of thing. It's freedom of thought for many of them because, like you said, they're even brainwashed to the point that they actually think that the leadership of North Korea can read their minds and read any you know, terrible thought about the regime that they might think up. So, you know, I'm wondering if you've gotten any kind of sense talking to refugees and that kind of thing, how someone goes from that mindset, the idea that, you know, that their mind is being read, that every thought that they can think of is being monitored to eventually coming around to, you know, getting a DVD, getting their hands on a DVD and watching it. And, you know, I guess building up that sense of kind of strength against all the propaganda they've been fed all their lives. How do people come into that and then break through that mold, break through that brainwashing that they've been drilled into their head their whole lives about the sort of godlike status of the North Korean regime? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the best way to illustrate that is um, the tale of a friend of mine, Yunmi Park. Um, she is a North Korean refugee and she is also, she identifies as libertarian. She's worked in the Students for Liberty network for some time, and we're very pleased to have her on board. She just recently spoke at Liberty in North Korea's summit over the summer on this exact subject, the Jiangmadang generation, the influx of markets, and the positive benefits that this is happening. From what I can tell from her inspirational story, the markets are becoming increasingly more prevalent, so much so that North Koreans cannot really avoid at least knowing about them. And I think that immediately, once you realize that maybe your neighbor has access to a papaya or you know some food that you have not seen in years, uh, it becomes all that more desirable to go out to the market square. And so I think that it's you know this is testament, and the philosophy of liberty illustrates this to me at least, is that humans I think have a natural tendency, right? We want to increase the quality of our life especially if we're in such dire conditions as the North Korean people are. So I think that it's really just inevitable. I think the markets are growing both in size and in number. The millennials are being born in these horrible conditions. And so as opposed to their parents who had a unfaltering loyalty to the regime because they lived in a time before the collapse of the state-centered economy, the, these millennials, Jiangmadang North Koreans, aren't born with that immediately. They are born into a world where one in four North Korean children is malnourished, where there is famine, there is you know food shortages, there is not access to health care, there is not freedom of speech or any of these things. And so I think it's just a natural tendency for these young Koreans to yearn for freedom. And I'm very excited to see that growing. Atai, what inspired you as a libertarian specifically to get involved with North Korean activism and why should other libertarians be concerned with this issue? 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a terrific question. Um, Michael Malice and I, the author I was working with on this project, have uh, a quite a few things in common, and we see completely eye to eye on this issue. He's a self-identified anarchist, um, and I obviously am pro-liberty as well. And he and I both agree that everyone is a libertarian vis-a-vis North Korea. Um, and that is to say that regardless of whether you, whether you find yourself on the left of the political spectrum, the right, or if you are a libertarian already, everyone already agrees that North Koreans need more freedom. Um, no one is really going to argue against that. And that means that if we're talking about the ideas of liberty and a freer North Korea in the same breath, which I do on campuses as I'm running these two organizations together, I like to demonstrate to people exactly how imperative freedom is by showing them the consequences of when it's lost, as it has been in North Korea. Um, so that that leads to a second point, I think, of you know why it is that I got involved as a libertarian, and you know why others might consider being involved. And th- this is the the biggest and most self evident one, uh, which is just that this is the most unfree country in the entire world. Objectively, there is no you know um, argument against that, and so. We can advocate for liberty on the domestic sphere, and we can see some tangible results from that. We have seen some tangible results from that. But we really have it pretty good, as far as I'm concerned, in the United States. And in North Korea, of course, as we've been talking about, the people are in uh, conditions unlike any other people in the entire world. So if we get involved in moving the needle towards freedom in North Korea in addition to moving it here, we can see more than just a couple bills passed. We can see thousands, if not millions, of people's lives being saved. And that's that's really what gets me out of bed in the morning to fight for liberty and North Korea activism. Wow. And what is Link's mission specifically in regards to helping people in North Korea? Liberty in North Korea is standing next to the North Korean people and trying to rescue as many North Korean refugees as possible. The basic rundown of the scenario that we're working with is that some North Korean refugees each year are able to make it from North Korea into China. They're able to cross the Tumain River because the, the demilitarized zone is the most heavily fortified border in the, in the entire world, so they're unable to go into South Korea. So what they will do is they will defect across the Tumain River into China. Unfortunately, however, China and North Korea share not a warm relationship with one another, but a close political one. And that being said, China does not recognize North Koreans as refugees. They deem them as economic migrants, which enables China to seek them out when they're there. It enables them to send them back where they may be publicly executed or uh, put in a concentration camp for their disloyalty to the North Korean regime. To put it just very simply, there's a refugee crisis in China. There are up to 50,000 North Korean refugees in China right now. They have no protection of legality, and this means that they're highly susceptible to invisible industries. They can be exploited by workers incredibly easily, and a significant proportion of women who defect from North Korea are sold into the sex trafficking industry. So there's a very serious problem with not just the North Koreans who are inside of the country, but once they actually get to China and actually get out of their country, sometimes they can have a worse outcome than they even had inside of the DPRK. Um, And that's where Link comes in. We're trying to raise funds on college campuses 
in communities, churches, whatever it is, so that we can fund these life-saving rescues. It costs $2,500 to save a North Korean, and that covers you know all of the, the costs that go into it. And so through the, the fundraising of diligent rescue teams, like the one on my campus and the one in the SFL network, you know, expanding out, we've been able to raise enough funds from these groups to fund 101 of those rescues, of those 265. So students there engaging in activism for liberty in North Korea are not just talking about ideas. They're not just handing out flyers. They're not, you know, just trying to get out the vote. They are saving the lives of North Korean refugees. Have you gotten any sense at all about the role the United States government has played in North Korea and how the government of the United States, not necessarily the people of the United States, might be perceived within North Korea? Do people see, you know, sometimes we have sanctions against North Korea, sometimes we help them build their nuclear plants and stuff like that in an effort to appease them. So do the people in North Korea have any sense that, you know, do they believe the hype that, America is a great Satan and a terrible power, or do they actually see Americans and maybe the American government as trying to help? Or, you know, have you gotten any kind of sense of that from the refugees you've spoken with? Um, yeah, absolutely. I didn't speak with these personal refugees, but I, I remember uh, learning about the very first rescue that Link executed. And what they had done when they met the North Koreans that they were going to be rescuing is they had to overcome a huge icebreaking <laughs> opportunity because the North Koreans they were rescuing had been taught their entire life that North Americans, you know, Americans in particular, were responsible for the conditions in which they were living. And that's that's what they're told by the state. So again, remembering that the only official opinion of North Korea that is allowed to be seen, heard, and then repeated is that which the state wants. They are producing an idea in, in the North Korean people's heads that the United States is to be blamed for the conditions which they are living in now, not their current government. There's a documentary which is really eye-opening called Soul Train. And when um, these North Koreans were being, you know, cured of their cataracts by this United States doctor, and they finally had the blindfolds lifted off of their eyes, the first thing they did was turn to the images of Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung, which by law have to be on a wall in every single home and facility. Um, they went to them screamed their praise, thanking the leaders for bringing their site back, not the doctor. And many of them screaming profanities and talking about how many Americans that they would kill in the honor of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il for, you know, bringing their site back. So that just gives you a little bit of the taste of the psychology of, I think, perhaps not an average Korean, but certainly it's in the water supply there. So that's what we're going up against. And of course, the entire anthem of the state is a propaganda onslaught of anti-Westernism. How do you view the development of liberty in North Korea? That is the name of the group. I mean, to an extent, we can help individual North Koreans by you know doing these sort of rescue missions, as you described. But, you know, do you actually see the actual internal politics? You, know, you talk about these markets emerging and that kind of thing. Do you think in 10, 20 years that there actually might be more kind of open freedom in North Korea? Do you think at some point the regime there will just have to gradually accept the reality that they'll have to let markets occur and that kind of thing if they want to even maintain their power? Because at some point when everyone's hungry and everyone is starving and, and no one has anything, I mean, that the regime would just loses legitimacy completely. I mean, I, when my travels, I've, I've met a lot of people from Cuba and, you know, 
I know one thing about Cuba is they, they kind of have the same government line there that the United States capitalism, et cetera, is responsible for all the terrible things happening to you. But, you know, in Cuba, the people, at least at this point, at least the people that I've spoken with don't really buy into that anymore. They have realized that the regime that Castro, they're not even allowed to say the words Castro out loud when they're, uh, when they're in Cuba out of fear that someone might overhear them talking about the president. So there is that, that same kind of mindset. But the sense that I've gotten is that they kind of accept the fact that Everything they're told is BS, and you know, I think they've come a long way in that sense, and that's kind of driven the internal politics of Cuba to the point that we actually see more opening up of the economy. People are allowed to own land there and that kind of thing now. It's, it's starting very slowly. So do you think there's a possibility of any of that kind of political reforms in North Korea, or is that regime so locked down into you know what they are that it's not going to change until it, I don't even know how, maybe just collapses under its own weight? I, I think that internal reform is virtually impossible. Uh, the North Korean government has absolutely no incentive to relinquish any of the power it's kept, and it makes every single concerted effort to maintain its grip on power. The North Korean leaders are known historically, um, you have to dig through the archives a little bit, but they, they tell the internal leadership that if there is a coup, if there is an overthrow or anything like this, that every single person in that room will be killed. So everyone knows exactly what would happen if there were any sort of upheaval, uproar, or you know, political dissent that could actually have a chance of making any paradigmatic shift in North Korea. So I think that looking to the politics of North Korea for change in any capacity whatsoever is completely fruitless. So regarding change in North Korea, again, I, I would echo the message of Link you know, the, the people is really where we should be looking at. And this actually was great for me when I was doing my project because my project was for Students for Liberty and I focused it around liberty in North Korea. And I realized becoming more familiar with both organizations that they both had a very complementary theory of social change. Uh, SFL asserts that ideas matter. And we were just talking about that. And Liberty in North Korea, of course, recognizes that the North Korean people, the ideas and the activities of the North Korean people, the culture, let's say, is going to be the driving force of change there. So on the loss of legitimacy, I think we are seeing huge strides. And uh, of course, I, you know, I'm not a North Korean citizen. and I have not gone there yet. And so I, I can't say firsthand. But from what I've heard and what I've heard from Michael Malice, the author of the book that I used to educate myself in this, and he's been working on me with the project. He's been to North Korea as well. And again, I, I really want to stress this new generation of North Koreans because I think that the potential here that we can tap into for change in North Korea is astounding. Their parents had no option but to be loyal to the regime. And although the millennial generation is expected to be loyal to the regime, it's just not the case. North Koreans are becoming increasingly aware of the world outside of them, although it's still not mainstream and accessible to most people. They are becoming more aware of it. And it's just impossible, as far as I'm concerned, to convince a people that they are better off when there is no food on the table and they know that their South Korean counterparts um, are living a much better life than they are in a freer society. So there's that. Do I think it's inevitable? No, I do not think that it is inevitable to change, but uh, we are seeing positive upticks. So um, I, I am hoping to continue moving the needle. And I think that the way that we do that how we continue to snowball change is in part by rescuing these refugees, and here is why. Liberty in North Korea rescues refugees for a number of reasons. Of course, there's the, the huge immediate benefit for rescuing a refugee. 
But again, people who find resettlement, now that they're adapted to, to the modern world, can send this money and information back. This is what Link calls the bridge to North Korea. And this bridge, we can expect to only get stronger as we continue to rescue more refugees, hopefully as the donor and student base for Link grows over the next couple of years. They've already rescued 265 refugees in a couple short years, and I'm, I'm very anxious for many more beyond that. You know, that's 265 people that potentially will be able to continue to perpetuate this change. These people have gone on to get master's degrees, speak around the world about the issues that they're doing. Yunmi Park, the refugee I mentioned a moment ago, she's got her own radio show now and podcast doing things, engaging in the discourse of ideas, much like you are with your podcast. So no, I don't think it's inevitable, but I think that we can accelerate change by standing by the North Korean people. Uh, it's really amazing the work that is going on with Liberty in North Korea, and it's it's really an issue that not that many people talk about. Because and it's funny because the United States government, if they really were concerned with humanitarian issues, I mean North Korea would be the number one target. And sure, we see you know some little political spats now and then with the United States and with North Korea, but it's all more of a headline kind of thing than any kind of call to save the people of North Korea. The people of North Korea seem to just be kind of shunted aside in this conversation all the time. So I'm really glad that there are people like you out there, groups like Link out there that are really trying to draw attention to the plight of the North Korean people and actually on the ground, helping them literally escape from this and, you know, start a better life for themselves. So I think it's really a great thing you're doing. And I'm really glad that you're involved with all this stuff. Cause like I said, if I could go back in time and slap my college self in the face, I would say, Hey buddy, come on, at least maybe take one or one or two nights off a week partying and do something here. But, uh, you know, we can always look back and that's why maybe I'm trying to make up for it by doing this show and doing everything else we're involved with at Lions for Liberty now. Ty, before I let you go, why don't you just do a quick run through and let everybody know any students that might be listening or anybody at all that might want to get involved with the organizations you're involved with, with Young Americans for Liberty, Students for Liberty, Link. Just give them the run through. How can people get involved with all that stuff and maybe get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, if if they're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming they're already sympathetic to the ideas of liberty. Hopefully. So if you find yourself in that position and you are a student, I would in highly encourage you to check out Young Americans for Liberty and Students for Liberty. They both put on events, give trainings, offer leadership positions, um, and do a bunch of other tremendous things that have really been life-changing for me personally and molded me in two years into uh, you know an aspiring professional libertarian. So I'd encourage you to do that. They've been very indelible to my college experience. So please check them out, especially if you're interested in starting a group. And if you're interested in getting in, involved in the North Korean issue in particular, whether you want to form a Liberty in North Korea rescue team on your campus, you want to support Link as an individual, perhaps you want to run a Link rescue team in conjunction with a Young Americans for Liberty chapter, which is exactly what I'm doing at my campus, then go to libertyinnorthkorea.org and you can get all of their information. And then also go to studentsforliberty.org slash liberty in North Korea. And there's a hyphen in between liberty in North Korea, each one of those words. And you'll be able to find all of the resources that I constructed for activists like yourself over the course of this past summer, you will find educational resources, activism resources you can use on the ground, a training handbook which will walk you through forming a rescue team and leading it effectively, amongst a, a slew of other things that I hope you will find valuable. So I encourage you to check that out, and you'll also be able to learn more about Michael Malice 
who's been truly the educational support and inspiration for this entire project of mine. And other than that, you're also free to contact me as well with any personal questions that you have as I'm leading this project through Students for Liberty. I'm more than happy to offer guidance to any students in particular, but any individuals who are interested in the subject. Ty Hicks, keep up the great work. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, Mark. Take care. We'll be back after a little break. Do you want your kids to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul, and you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com slash Paul. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the liberty movement moving. Hey guys, Mark Clare here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar, where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media, or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at lionsofliberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. Chris Rossini's new book, Set Money Free. Set Money Free. What every American needs to know about the Federal Reserve. Set Money Free. With a special foreword by Ron Paul. Set Money Free. It has easy to understand questions and answers. Set Money Free. Buy Set Money Free on Amazon.com. Set Money Free. Chris Rossini's Set Money Free. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, guys, and I hope you enjoyed my interview there with Ty Hicks. A great young man. I can't believe I'm actually calling someone a young man. How old am I now? I'm not that old. But to me, he's a young man, and he's doing a lot of great work, both with Young Americans for Liberty, with Students for Liberty, and particularly as we spent much of the show talking about Liberty in North Korea, a really great project that I've only become aware of in the last few months, doing a lot of great work to not only spread the ideas of liberty within North Korea, but to physically help people escape that place and you know find more freedom in the world. And they're really doing a lot of great work in that regard. You know, We talk about all sorts of humanitarian issues here and there all over the world, in the Middle East, you know, in Africa, but... I mean, the biggest humanitarian crisis on the planet might be the country of North Korea and the literal slavery and literal oppression that the people of that country are under. It's really something that 
doesn't get talked about enough. So I'm glad I could have Ty on to discuss this issue. I want you guys to discuss this issue and many other issues with us over at our social media. Of course, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Find us on the Twitter, at Lions of Liberty. You can find us on Google+. You can email me with any feedback. Mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. The most important thing is to keep this conversation going, both between ourselves and between everybody else we meet in the world, our friends, our family, everybody we run into. It's important to keep having these conversations. So we hope that you will continue to do so, continue coming over to lionsofliberty.com, continue supporting and listening to this show. There are so many ways you can hear it. Of course, it's published every single Thursday at lionsofliberty.com. You can find it on iTunes, find it on the Stitcher Radio app. Hey, if you just want to sit back and hear us whenever we come on, you can check us out every weekend, 6 p.m. Eastern, on Grassroots Revolution Radio, also throughout the week at lrn.fm, the Liberty Radio Network. Keep that conversation going. And if you're a student, if you're a young man, don't be like me. Get off your keister and make some things happen. Get involved with one of these great groups. And of course, as always, I ask you to live long and live free.